Hey man, how are you? Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? Good. Yeah. I'm trying to. You're good. Is it decent? Where's the cat? Uh, well, at the moment they're locked out of the room. Now, that doesn't mean that they won't try to beat down the door at some point. Yeah, I've got uh, two Siamese cats um, and then two labs. So, and oh man, Siamese cats are so pretentious. <laughs> so. Uh, my, my grandmother had a Siamese cat when I was real young. I don't remember much about it. I think her name was, uh, I think it was Sheba, which is like a really pretentious sounding name. So I guess that that goes with the theme. Yeah, well, right on, man. Well, it's good to see you again. You uh, you ready to just jump right in? Uh, yeah, I guess. I was. I don't know if I need notes for this. I've been trying to go back over my uh, own stuff. You know, you write something and you forget what you wrote. Man, thanks for the article. I got it. I printed it off. Um, I'm definitely gonna. Man, this is. I can integrate that. I'm teaching Arkansas history every semester and in the summer, and I can definitely integrate uh, some of this content. Uh, so uh, I was excited to, uh, when you sent me that article, to be able to, to just kind of look at some of the sources, and I'm excited to expand upon the topic as well. <clears throat> well, um, you know, uh, feel free. I wish that this would open when I tell it to open. Um, there we go. I think. Yeah. I don't know. Are you, are we, are we, are we, uh, we can start? get official. Yeah. We, I'm good with whenever you are, there's no hurry. Um, if you uh, need to get your document pulled up or whatever, man, no rush. I, I finally found it. You know, I, um, as I, I was spent all morning going back through notes and things and I've got like 400 trains of thought running through my head. So whatever. Yeah. Hey dude, that whatever. was me. That was me last time we podcasted. I kind of was like, I went off the rails sometime in the middle for at least 10 minutes. I mean, <laughs> so. <laughs> hey man, since, um, since we did that, um, we got, the U of A faculty to adopt the resolution about the flag. And nice. we got the undergraduate government to do it. I had to go to the undergraduate meeting to get it done. Uh, are we recording? We are, but I'm not, I can edit this portion out. We can do an official start yeah. point whenever. Do you want to start? Do you want to include this, what you're about to say? No, 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 no. I don't, I don't okay. want this. Okay. Okay. So All right. I had to go to the undergraduate government to get them to adopt the resolution. I had one kid try very hard to kill it. The only black kid in the undergraduate government is a diversity officer for the He went, can you still hear me? I think you froze on my screen. Yeah, no, you, I, you, you kind of froze a little bit and delayed, but I can hear you. Oh, we had an habit. Anyway. So the only the only person that spoke out against this was um, again the only black kid in the undergraduate government. 
diversity officer for the campus Republicans. I don't know how the hell that happened. And then he went through like all of the historical erasure, uh, you know, talking points and all the typical, all, all that sort of thing. So they let me like counter debate him. Man, I had like an out of body experience. So we were in the the U of A ballroom and, and I had I, I had a platform stage. There's something very empowering about a platform stage. And I, just, I don't know, I, I had like an out of body, I don't remember most of what I said, but when I finished, um, a guy that went with me uh, was like, oh my God, like that was worth the wait. There's, there's an administrator there who said, I really wish I could take your class. And then some, some undergraduate girl, as I'm walking back off the stage is looking at me doing this the whole time. I guess like, like I'm, so anyway, it was like an out of body experience, but I went, I went really fucking hard. But what we've discovered since we talked to you, you know, we're trying to build this footprint of support is that in 1940, the UA system by rule established the state flag as the UA system flag. So it's also an institutional problem. Oh, wow. That begs a whole other set of things that you guys mentioned. Uh, Oh, wow. So if you're if you're part of the UA system, then the state flag is your flag, and that Confederate star and clan legacy are also your institutional legacies. Man, that that star has become such a dog whistle for me. Like every time I pull into like my office at the university, I see it and I'm like, the fitness center where there's a church next to it, there's a flag up there. I'm like, Confederacy. <laughs> Exactly. And the thing, you know, it, it's not even just the Confederacy. Honestly, look, what we know that if we're just dealing with the Confederacy, that is a hurdle that in Arkansas at this point, you're not going to jump. You're not going to jump the Confederate hurdle, but you can jump the Klan hurdle. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I'm focused on. Because the Klan hurdle is racist, it's nativist, it's anti-Semitic, which is huge. You know, if you cannot get people with so-called Judeo-Christian values to freak out about anything. You can get them to freak out about anti-Semitism. So I've really been trying to drive that one home. Man, I've been seeing you guys give, how many times have you given a talk on that topic? Three or four times since? Uh, Not including you twice. Um, This last week we did it, um, for the library i had approached them about doing it they were very um timid let's say and then they were even more so timid when their advertisements for it began to get blown up on facebook um i didn't see any of the comments i was told after the fact but i I can imagine what the comments were the first time we advertised it through the graduate student government i had all sorts of shit said to me uh somebody told me that my mother should have swallowed i mean it just like went off the rails. So we gave it without incident last week. They were um, extremely particular about letting people into the Zoom call. I mean, like like Fort Knox style Zoom call, uh, but we had 81 people. Wow. And uh, I think it went, it went pretty well. You know, um, there was, I think pretty much all of the, que- there's only maybe one historical question the rest of the questions revolved around like the now, you know, now what do we do? Um, 
so we discussed that as you know, apolitical as possible, stress, you know, pushing the educational standpoint, historical accuracy standpoint, and avoiding the culture war as best as possible. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I just started covering the Civil War in Arkansas, uh, and I'll be leading into Reconstruction next week. So it's. Uh, it was a topic that came up in class this very morning, right? So, but it uh, it, it uh, it's it's so nice that the conversation is open. I mean, I'm I'm <clears throat> I'm hearing about it. I'm talking about it. You're talking about it. I'm hearing you guys talk about it. It's been something swirling about for me for the last couple of years, but um, it is, uh, you know, I, I would love to see the issue continue to move forward. Next month, the uh, faculty at UCA, their Senate is going to is going to consider whether or not to adopt the resolution that I wrote back in. You know, this started basically. I was trying to find a way to institutionalize it within U of A to create a, to create some sort of you know blueprint that would let us push towards the chancellor and the board of trustees. This is before I knew that it was already institutionalized by a 1940 rule. Um, but the original, so the original resolution, um, the Senate faculty at UCA will take up next month. The student government at UCA has already adopted it. Mm -hmm. um, so we are trying to spread out out of this Northwest corner and the state legislator uh, being as Republican heavy as it is, does not particularly give a shit what comes out of the University of Arkansas in terms of this kind of thing. Um, you know, we're just the, uh, the cultural Marxists up here. So yeah, as they say. Yeah. Um, well, man, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get, so I, I kind of just had like a general two part format idea your topic and research and this article you sent me and what you've expounded upon. I had a couple of questions. Um, and, but or before that, if we could just maybe just talk like, just like some biographical stuff about you, would that be cool? Uh, sure. I guess whatever. Like how you got into history, like what, what you're doing right now, uh, what yeah, you're going to do in the future type stuff, you know? That's fine. I think, yeah, uh, I listened to um, part of your, your, I guess you were live feeding it uh, with Kelly Jones. Yeah, yeah, she's so good, dude. She's so yeah. good. So I, I, I kind of know the way you went about her by her by. Yeah, I did. I did a very similar, and I haven't uploaded it yet with um, Dr. Totten, Eric Totten, Marie's husband. Mm -hmm. So, um, man, I've I'm sitting on a couple of podcasts. I've got to I've got to upload. So, but um, yeah, that's uh, so that way, you know, I, and too, that's something I'm interested in, man. It's like, I don't see myself going to PhD school anytime soon, but it's great to, it's really cool to be able to talk to people who are there, you know? So right on. Well, we're, Let's do it. We're All right. So back on the podcast with Will Teague of, uh, you know, U of A, and you're going to be talking about your research a little bit. It's history unraveled episode. So appreciate you taking the time to come back on and talk about your research and man they, you had sent me an article I, I i found it super fascinating um just and you said you'd expanded upon the quarterly article right so that's that's what we'll talk yeah. about here in a few yeah. well let, so like back up just a little bit um man how did you get into history like wh when did that become a passion for you that you decided to pursue at the highest level uh so um my first undergraduate degree was from Henderson State in Arkadelphia. Uh, if there are any 
you know, Reddy's fans, you know, I've never actually watched a single moment of Reddy's sports, anything, but go Reddy's. Anyway, so my first, my, my first degree was from there. It's political science. And I got, you know, I got, I got towards the end of that degree, like the last semester of that degree. And it occurred to me, you know, I really like the history part of this more so than I do the, you know, like the political theory part. Um, you know, when, when you do a poli-sci degree, a lot of those classes are cross-listed and you have to choose, do you want political science credit or history credit? Um, so, you know, there's, there's so much overlap, but I, I thought, you know, I really like the history side of this more so. And uh, so I, I finished my degree and I was trying to kind of figure out what, it, what do I do with my life? And I thought, you know, I kind of wish I had done a history degree as well. So right before I graduated the first time, there's a, a professor at Henderson. I, I think she's a dean now, Angela Boswell. And, you know, we all kind of have those one or two figures in our, in our collegiate careers uh, or early collegiate careers anyway, that really kind of define you or they really impact, you know, who you are and, and how you go about things. So I was sitting in the hallway on Henderson's campus uh, in McBrien, I think it's the third floor. And I was looking, I was looking through um, a class catalog for the next semester. And this is, I was about to graduate. So I was just killing time. And Angela Boswell walked by me and said, oh, well, you should take so-and-so class. I said, well, you know, I, I'm not going to because I'm graduating. And she said to me, how did you get out of here with a degree and never take a class with me? And I thought, well, you know, hell if I know, I, you know, take that up with my, with my advisor, I guess. So I'm sitting around after I, after I graduate, trying to decide what to do. And I kind of kept hearing her voice in my head. Like, why didn't you take a class with me? So I started emailing her. You know, I think I might want to tack on a history degree. She figured out how to do that. I needed to go back to Henderson and add um, 30 total hours to, to, do a, to do a history degree. I think it was 18 in history and 12 and just whatever. So I went back and I went back straight to her. I did not go to my previous advisor and just kind of formed a relationship with her. And I think a couple classes with her, one of them was Colonial America. Colonial America is probably my least favorite part of American history. Um, I really struggle to, to get through it or to care. Um, I understand the importance of it, but it's just not, it doesn't turn me on, you know? Um, and I took it with her and she made it, she made it fun. She made it interesting. She talked about it and she wasn't talking about, you know, sort of the generic colonial America experience, but she's a women's historian and really talked about, um, you know, the, the, the women's experience in colonial America and how, even though they were in this social, you know, role of subordination, how their growing um, influence throughout the family kind of, you know, pushed and pulled on typical uh, social norms. She made it really interesting to me, basically. Um, I wrote maybe at that point, the best paper I'd ever written, I wrote for her. Um, and I just, I just kind of developed a friendship with her, I guess, our relationship anyway. What was her name again? She just Angela Boswell at Henderson. Um, she's just a fantastic history professor. Um, but anyway, I finished that history degree and I, I kind of went out and I worked in, you know, retail and that kind of thing. I couldn't find anything else to do. And I thought, you know, I really had a lot of fun, basically, you know, researching in her, you know, in her classes and learning history the way that she taught it um, and the passion that she had for it. And I thought, you know, I want to, I want to continue on. So um, I met, I, I met this person who's a, who's a good friend of mine now 
And, you know, like we maybe in our collegiate careers, we have people that really impact us in our private lives. We have people that really kind of determine our role in life as well, or not role, but our, our, our trajectory. So I met this girl named April, and she had just gotten accepted to a master's program in Dublin, Ireland. And she said to me, you should apply. I had never thought about going out of the country for grad school. So I thought, why not? So I applied, I got accepted, and I moved to Ireland to do a master's in history. That is, wow. And that was kind of a, a, a life-defining kind of thing. And not, and I don't want it to sound like the stereotypical, you know, white guy goes to Europe and comes back, you know, enlightened or anything. None, none of that bullshit. It was, it was, you know, it, it, but it was, it was a formative moment. Yeah. Um, I'm an only child. And, you know, with being an only child, you can come kind of come from a coddled background and you know, I'll admit that. And going out and basically being by myself in a foreign country, which is only Ireland, you know, it's, you know, it's a Western city. Um, you know, I think Ireland, I think Dublin is closer to Hot Springs, Arkansas than like uh, the state of Oregon is, you know, I mean, it's really not that far when you think about it. But um, I went and it was just such an interesting experience just kind of being on my own and feeling my way through grad school while trying to navigate a foreign country um it, it just really kind of changed who i was um you know at, at the core or 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 brought it out or, or whatever so i came back um i taught for a year in el dorado at a community college down there and while i applied for phd programs u of a not that I'm bitter about this. U of A uh, rejected me the first time. And um, I said, okay, whatever. And I kept doing my thing and I reapplied. Um, and the second time they, they took me and, you know, that's where I am. So I started uh, the PhD program in fall of 2016. Um, I guess the article that we'll eventually talk about when I shut up, um, I published a couple of years later and then that has become the dissertation project. Okay, so uh, real quick question. Um, you know, obviously your graduate school experience and my graduate school experience at Arkansas Tech University were vastly different. Um, one thing uh, that I'm always fascinated by is the, the sort of, hey, find something nobody's done and nobody said and write about that, research that, add to, uh, this broader um, base of knowledge uh, your scholarship in a unique way what's it I mean what's what's the culture like uh, at a graduate school in Dublin Ireland I mean is it the same sort of academic approach at that what did you what did you research there uh, so there's so my master's thesis was actually on the early histories of the three major American sports football basketball and baseball um, which is kind of funny to write about from Ireland, by the way, real pain in the ass to, to write about from Ireland. But my, my advisor there, uh, Paul Rouse, he was a, um, I, I think maybe he still does it some, but he, he was formerly a journalist uh, who did all sorts of things, but he's a sports historian. And when I first went to Ireland, I said, you know, I, I think I'm going to do the Cold War. And I want to write about uh, the space race as part of, you know, the Cold War. And he thought, or he said, you know, oh, neat, you know, whatever. And then if you get into a few months of it, and why well, I get into several months of the program, 
And I'm talking to um, a friend of mine that I made there, uh, an Irish girl named Eileen, who I was actually just talking to her this morning. We've, we've stayed in touch. And I talking to her about college football and how much I love college football. And she had questions. And she said to me, why don't you write your thesis about sports? And I thought, oh, my God, I've never thought about doing that. So I go to my advisor and I pitch the idea. And he says, I would much rather read about that than the, than the space race as, as, as part of the Cold War. Do that. So I did that. And I turned my first draft into him. And of course, it's a first draft and uh, it needed a lot of changes. But he said to me, I want you to know that I never enjoy these things when I read them, but I enjoy yours. He's a sports historian. So, um, so anyway, I went to Ireland and I wrote about American sports. Um, oh, that's, and that's fascinating. Uh, that's kind of, I mean, with my master's thesis, I wrote a lot about sports nationalism in the Olympics and martial arts, right? So yeah, yeah, uh. definitely. Well, you know, with, with I mean, sports nationalism. If you're if you're uh, you know in, in Ireland, it's the, it's the Gaelic football. Um, you know, I, I I think that my former advisor has actually written. He's written at least one book about that. Um, you know, they take that extremely seriously. There, there's an immense amount of not just national pride wrapped up, but county pride wrapped up in your in your uh, in, in your Gaelic football team. Um, you know, baseball for us is is our sports nationalism. You know, America's game, America's pastime. That's not just something yeah. that we say, um, but it, it's true. It, it was. You know the, the origins of baseball are, are, are murky, and it, and it didn't come out of you know upstate New York or anything. It's you know, that's all mythological. But um, the the person who identified baseball as being um, the avenue for for being the American sport was actually a British guy named Henry Chadwick, uh, who had moved to the United States. I think with a Spain as a kid or as a young man, and he was a sports he was a sports journalist. And uh, he was like walking home one day and saw some guys playing baseball. And he thought to himself, this could be America's game. And through his coverage, I actually talk about this in the thesis, uh, you know, uh, Spalding is treated as, is, as, you know, this father of American baseball quite, quite often. Um, if, if you get away from the, um, oh, the, the myth, the, uh, again, where's the baseball hall of fame? Ooh, I'm not sure. So. I can Google it. Anyway, anyway, so there, there was this debate around, you know, who 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 invented baseball's America's game, and in the early 1900s, the uh, annual Spalding Baseball Guide identified Henry Chadwick as the father of American baseball. Actually. Cooperstown, New York. Cooperstown, thank you, Cooperstown. Uh -huh. um, so anyway, I, I did that, and I did uh, football and basketball came it came last i did them in chronological order basically i would i would write that in a much different way than i did now because i know so much more now just about american history in general and it didn't occur to me at the time how saturated football was with masculinity uh you know with, with masculinity issues um i mean it dawned on me some but i, I understand the issue you know in a much more i guess complex way now um you know, football came out of the Ivy League schools initially, and it was a way basically for eggheads to go prove themselves. Because between the Civil War and the Spanish-American War, if you don't account for the Western Wars with the natives, 
um, was no major military event in the United States. So you had a generation of young men that needed to prove themselves as men. And they did that on, on the football field. Um, and if you read uh, news reports from that time, not too much unlike today, they're constantly talking about, um, you know, it was a battle or it was a war um, in, in regard to uh, football game recaps. Um, but anyway, that was my master's thesis. And I, I wrote about American sports from Ireland, basically. Man, it's a super cool topic, though. Like, as soon as you said that, I was, uh, it piqued my interest because, I mean, I'm, they, I'm interested in shared points of research. Uh, you know, I would really love to do some music history someday. And uh, I had a guy on the podcast a, a while back who's a historian who had authored uh, Van Halen Rising, but he's using historical methods to write this music history. Like, uh, martial arts history is very weird, man, because most of the people that write stuff, not uh, a vast majority of stuff that's written is written by practitioners and not by historians. There's only a handful of martial arts historians out there, you know, and one of them passed uh, the guy that I worked with, uh, from a distance, uh, on my master's thesis passed away. So, yeah. But it's it's sports nationalism, sports in general. It's a fascinating topic, for sure. Uh, speaking of music, I don't know anything about music history, but um, this this guy that I should have that I kind of know, he's an undergrad or just finished as his undergraduate at, at the University of Central Arkansas. He wrote his honors thesis on um, punk rock. Oh, cool! And. Uh, you know, the history of punk and the, the political overlap and implications, that, you know, in the 70s and the 80s. Um, really fascinating stuff. Like, I, I don't know enough about it, you know, to tell you, you know, uh, how it might compare, but uh, to anything else. But it was, it was I, I read his, you know, his honor thesis just, just out of curiosity, and it was really interesting. So, and I can't tell you that his name, but someone in the state, uh, I want to say out of ASU, I believe they have like a uh, doctorate of philosophy and cult uh, cultural studies or something like that. But he had um, sought employment where I work and it, it sent me an email, but he had written his dissertation on the band, the drive by truckers. Right. I have no idea who that is. Well, they are, they're a very interesting political band with connections to like all of these other bands and to their, their non-stereotypical uh, Southern rock band in that, uh, well, like for example, on every, uh, every stage show, they have a black fist as a stage prop. Right. Um, the, you ever see that documentary muscle shoals, Nope. It's a music documentary. It was on Amazon Prime for a long time. I actually ended up buying it. It's really good. But all of these famous bands, Leonard Skinner, Aretha Franklin, a whole Almond Brothers, everybody recorded there. And the front man of the Drive by Trucker's dad was the session bassist there. He's still alive. But there it's just weird how they're all these bands are are sort of interconnected across generations from Almond Brothers in the 60s and 70s to drive-by truckers and widespread panic is my interest, which widespread panic in many ways funded the drive-by truckers. So I don't know if this guy emailed me for that reason, but he wrote like 800 pages on the drive-by truckers, man. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean that blew, that blew my mind, but it, it too it was about there. The, a lot of these bands like uh, are really into the same things we're into. They talk about and sing about equality, like widespread panic, um, drive by truckers, Todd Snyder. I don't know if you've ever heard of Todd Snyder, uh, but um, these are kind of these non-stereotypical Southern bands that are singing singing about the same stuff we're going to talk about, you know. So it's 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 interesting to look at the history, and that's widespread panic. So I'd like to do a little uh, history on or some blog blog posts or articles or something. I, that's why I had that historian on was to be like, how'd you go about writing a music history? What's that look like? You know, it's interesting. Sports history subset, interesting. You know, to talk yeah, to those no, people. I, so I don't, I, I don't know. My music history is not good whatsoever. But, but looking at the way that <clears throat> historical moments and in art and culture uh, overlap and influence one another, um, drive one another, or you know, how, and however, and the last time we talked about, for example, you know, birth of a nation. And how influential, uh, you know, of, of art that was, you know, to, to talk about the Cold War. If you've never read the book "Satchmo Blows Up the World" by Penny von Eschen, you should read that. That is, yeah, I'll look into that. Um, it, it's it's all about really. It's really centered around the 1950s, early 1960s, when the the United States knew that one of its deficiencies in uh, vying for the hearts and minds of the third world was the problems in race relations at home. And the Soviet Union was able to use white-black race relations in the U.S. Uh, as a talking point for why these non-white third world nations could not trust the United States. And, you know, the, the Soviet Union didn't even have to propagandize that. Like, that was just fact. So the United States, the, the U.S. government, the Eisenhower administration, decided to send jazz abroad. The, the U.S. State Department sent jazz to the third world, to places like the Congo, where the book title comes from, Sashmo Goes Up the World, to, to show that you know, jazz, and it, it, these were mostly white bands or they were interracial bands, but to show you know, that jazz, which is you know, specifically, historically, you know, a, a black art form, uh, or art from the black community, the, the cultural contribution of black Americans. Uh, I think some people would say the only um, legitimately, you know, uh, American cultural, you know, creation is jazz. Everything else is kind of, uh, well, cynically, everything else is kind of borrowed, but jazz, you know, anyway. Um, the State Department exported jazz, basically, to the third world during the Cold War through so that they could show through music that race relations in the U.S. weren't actually that bad. Now, I mean, you know, they were, but but that was the idea. It was to push back against this narrative that race relations in the U.S. were so bad that the third world could not trust uh, the foreign policy of the United States. Yeah, um, interesting. So let's let's jump forward to this. Like, you come back from. It's a really interesting master's thesis. I'm still going to say that, right? You, you, I kind of, wow, that's interesting that you applied twice before you got admitted uh, to PhD school. How, so you've been in since what, that was 2016, 2017 that you uh, started? Fall 2016 is when I started. Okay. So been in uh, four years or so. Mm -hmm. um, 
at what point did you become interested in sort of shifting your research to what you're pursuing now and to an interest in the Cold War? Oh, well, that's before I ever started. Um, as an undergrad, I took a course uh, in, in um, with his name was uh, Professor Halpern, also Henderson in Arkadelphia. Um, I took a course with him. It was the U.S. from 1945. It was a Cold War course. Mm-hmm. And, and that just sort of stuck with me. Um, I never lost interest in that. It's just with my master's thesis, I went a different direction. So before I ever applied to U of A, I knew what I was doing. I knew what I wanted to do, rather. Uh, now, on you know, I, I would, where I've ended up in terms of where I've landed within the Cold War, I never would have imagined. But I just knew that, that I wanted to do the Cold War broadly. Um, so that's what I went in, you know, intending to do. Um, as far as this topic goes, so my, my first semester, um, I had the option to take a research methods class if I wanted to. And the, the, the grad advisor at the time said, you know, you can opt out, you've had it, you took it as, you know, during your master's, um, but you can take it if you want. And I thought, you know, it's been a while. Uh, um, and that was in Ireland on top of it. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just take it here. Just, you know, just to be sure that I, I know what it is that I'm doing and what the expectations are. So an assignment in that course was go jump into the U of A archive and just write about something, produce a paper. So I was thinking, you know, I was interested in um, what Fulbright thought of the Jewish lobby. So I go down to the archive and I'm looking and I'm talking to people and somebody says, well, you know, a master's student here in the last few years actually wrote a full thesis on Fulbright and the Jewish lobby. So it's kind of been done. And it says, you should probably read the thesis. So I read the thesis and it was fine, but yeah, it had been done. So I mean, I'm just digging, right? And I guess this, we can just kind of segue into the topic. I'm kind of digging. And I was looking through the Dale Bumpers papers and mm-hmm. somebody had written a letter to him in, oh, I think his name was Joey White. And I want to say in December of 79. And in the letter, he's complaining to Bumpers about Iranian students on campus. Why do they get to quote unquote act this way while you know we're paying for them to be here kind of thing. And I thought, what in the hell is this kid talking about? So I'm digging through the the bumpers papers and there are more things like this coming up in constituent constituent letters. So I start asking around the history department, what is this? Nobody had an answer. I went to my uh, advisor, Randall Woods, who's been at U of A since the late seventies. I said, what is this kid talking about? You were here. And he said, I don't know. I just kept digging and I started going through other other politicians collections of papers going through the Arkansas Democrat and the Arkansas Gazette at that time they weren't the same paper at, the, uh, at that point. And what I started to stumble stumble upon was that when the Iranian hostage crisis began in November of 1979. Um, a week after. Uh, um, that happened. Uh, so on November 10th, 1979, a week after the hostage crisis began, President Carter had issued an order to Immigration and Naturalization Services, uh, INS at the time. INS doesn't exist anymore. After 9-11, it was reoriented under Homeland Security, and now it is, it's is—it's ICE basically now. The INS at the time, he issued an order to them that said, I want you to assess all Iranian students in this nation for deportation. And 
he was there 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 are tons and tons of layers to this but so okay so everybody probably knows the fulbright exchange program is um the fulbright exchange program is the you know the 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 um the legacy the legacy program put together by uh, arkansas senator william j fulbright in the 1940s it was based on a post-world war ii um idea that in order to promote world peace, you need to have cultural and educational exchange. That through this process, you avoid all out world war. You don't have to have an arms race, but you can do this through mutual understanding. So it's his legacy. Iran in 1949 was the first Middle Eastern nation to sign on to the Fulbright program. The United States did not have a relationship with Iran until the late 1940s in a, in a government to government capacity. So. That changed shortly after World War II, and then Iran is the first Middle Eastern nation to sign on. Iran took advantage of the Fulbright program for decades. In 1976, for example, if you look at the, the amount of funding the Fulbright program had available, in 1976, Iran put more money into that fund than the United States put into that fund. Until 1979, of all the foreign exchange students in the U.S., Iranians were the majority at 56,000. There's about 250,000 total, total foreign exchange students in the U.S. 1979, Iranians were the majority 56,000. Oh. So you've got a bunch of Iranians in the United States, and these, these, they're on campuses, man, everywhere. You had about 150 at U of A. You had a handful at UCA, a handful at Arkansas Tech. You had six at Henderson. You had one at, at the time, the brand new community college in Hot Springs. They're everywhere. They're, they're, at, they're at Stanford, they're at Yale and at Princeton. There's a lot of them in Texas and Oklahoma getting training on how to um, run oil production. They're in the US looking at engineering, they're learning agricultural methods, uh, all, sorts of, all sorts of things that they could take back to Iran to improve upon the infrastructure of Iran, essentially. So education was extremely important. Education was a staple of the U.S.-Iranian relationship. Now, the U.S.-Iranian relationship, you know, was built on uh, Cold War security. It was built on ideas of containment. But in terms of, like, soft power diplomacy, is in, ter in terms of more like... Um, uh, you know, non-military relationships, education was the staple of the relationship. So by giving this order to INS to assess these people for deportation, Carter was essentially, and, I, and I'm going to sound really pretentious when I say this, Carter was leveraging modernity, or maybe better put, leveraging access to modernity. Because if those students couldn't be in the U.S. to get the education needed to improve upon the infrastructure of Iran, then, in, then at least in theory, it was a detriment to Iran, right? And now modernization theory at this time is basically dead, but it still functions somewhat. And historians disagree on how prevalent modernization theory was in the relationship by the late 1970s. But it, but it, it revolves around this idea of modernity. It always revolves around the idea that President Carter did not want to lose the relationship with Iran. He was willing to have a relationship with the Ayatollah because of the Cold War, because of the broader issue of Soviet containment. So by targeting students, as opposed to using military options, you could, you could potentially 
maintain the relationship. So that's what he was trying to do. Mm. That was, um, and I looked at some of your sources from these student interviews um, across the state. How many total students was it in the state? 400? Is that correct? Uh, It was between four and 450 in Arkansas. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah, uh, and like you said, 150 at UCA—that's that's a substantial number. Were you able to, or have you been able to, or will you be able to talk with any of these people? Do you think? I've only found one. Um, he was at Tulsa, uh, University of Tulsa in Oklahoma. Uh, he's in New York now. He's an engineer. I was able to talk to him. Uh, he came from a upper middle class, well-connected family in Tehran. His family was still in Tehran at the time. They're still in Tehran, as a matter of fact. Um, I don't know if you could say that they were in the Pahlavi's inner circle, but they were of that social status. So from talking to him, um, kind of what I gathered is that he, he basically made kind of an apolitical status. And a lot of Iranians in the U.S. did intentionally maintain an apolitical status during the revolution while they were in the U.S., um, he says, you know, he remembers walking to, uh, to, you know, to, I guess around campus or to class and seeing some people holding up, you know, anti-Iranian signs, things that we would call nativist, uh, mm-hmm. sorts of signs with that kind of messaging on them. But otherwise he said he kept his head down and, and, you know, and did not, um, inject himself into, into really what was happening. Which, uh, just explain real briefly, um, and we can kind of pay back up with the, the deportations. Um, so what is going on with the crisis? <clears throat> and what is the sort of student opinion at home versus abroad? How the, how the, um, it got the, the set in, got hijacked, et cetera. If you could do a little background on that. I, I can try to do just kind of background in general. Um, let's do the U.S.-Iranian relationship background. Because yeah, I think you have to understand uh, in general kind of what this looks like. So again, the U.S. and the Iranian government really did not have an official relationship of any importance until right after World War II. Now, for decades, U.S. missionaries had gone to Iran as well as to places like Egypt and, and Lebanon uh, to, to engage in education, um, whether it be more formal education or like agricultural. Uh, so there had been these sort of, you know, there had been these non-government relationships. But during World War II, uh, for the sake of strategy, Iran basically got broken in half into two military districts, one occupied by the Soviets, one occupied by the British. Because Pahlavi, the, the first Pahlavi, Pahlavi Sr., the, the monarch, was pro-German. He was pro-Germany. He was pro-Germany because the British and the Soviets, well, the British and the Russians, had been fighting over having a sphere of influence in Iran for, you know, over a century. So he's pro-German, and this was bad for, for Allied strategy. So Iran gets broken in half. They agree that when the war is over, everybody will go home and leave Iran, you know, to its own designs. So the war ends, the British leave, what American presence was there leaves as well, but the Soviets in the North don't leave. And I don't think many people understand this, and typically when we talk about the beginning of the Cold War, we look to Europe and we look to Berlin. But 
the place that the Cold War could have become hot first was in Iran because the Soviets would not leave. There was a separatist movement in Azerbaijan, a northern province of Iran. The Soviets were encouraging that separatist movement. They wanted uh, oil access like the British had in the southern part of Iran along the Gulf. And through political maneuvering of the Iranian prime minister and of the British and of the US, mostly of the Iranian prime minister, the Soviets were finally forced out of, of the northern part of Iran. But when this happened, United, or I guess to make this happen, the United States had to formally create a relationship with the Iranian government at this point. The, the US and Iran and, and the Iranian government finally became actually you know, in, in a real working relationship to make this happen. So it's right after World War II that the US and the Iran governments become you know, you know, actually uh, engaged with one another. So World War II is over. Pahlavi's son, uh, uh, the Pahlavi that everybody's probably familiar with, comes to power. And he rules for about five years. And then there is a democratically elected uh, prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, that comes to power. Now, Mossadegh was a fierce nationalist. At the time, he was smeared as a communist. He was not, um, but he was a nationalist. So Pahlavi and Mosaddegh did not get along with one another. So 1951, Pahlavi leaves Iran and Mosaddegh is left there to run the country. One of the first things that he does is he nationalizes the oil industry in Iran. The oil industry had been dominated by the British uh, since the first decade of the 1900s. The Iranians were supposed to be given a, a fair share of the profits. They were not. They were not getting that. They were mad. They, so they took control of the oil industry in Iran. The British want to remove Mosaddegh because of this. They go to President Truman. Truman basically says, that's not going to happen. We're not on board with that. But Truman was on his way out the door, and Eisenhower was on his way in. Eisenhower and his Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, and the CIA director, the, the brother, Alan Dulles, were all fierce, fierce cold warriors. So the British went back and said, hey, we need to remove Mosaddegh because he's a communist. He wasn't, but, you know, it's the early 1950s. This works. So the Eisenhower administration agrees. So the CIA, in conjunction with MI6, construct a coup. And through a coup run by the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt, Kermit Roosevelt, on the ground in Tehran, through the coup, overthrow Mosaddegh and bring Pahlavi back to power in 1953. Now, this is a really important part of the overall story because the American public did not know about this. American public didn't know about this for a long time. Historians began figuring it out by the 1960s, but not in great detail. And they were still writing that Mosaddegh was a communist and he deserved it. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until uh, the first year of the Trump administration that the State Department finally wrote an accurate state history that admitted to the coup that everybody already knew existed. But over the course of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the American public did not know about this coup. The coup was important because it was orchestrated from the basement of the embassy in Tehran. So when the hostage crisis began, of course, the hostage crisis is a product of the seizure of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. The embassy was targeted in 1979 
because they had just gotten rid of Pahlavi, Khomeini had just come back to power, and the Iranians that were pro-Khomeini were terrified that the U.S. would orchestrate another coup from that embassy. They had that historical memory very much alive in their minds. So they were trying to head off the possibility of a coup. Now, between 53 and 79, the relationship between the U.S. and the Pahlavi government evolves. By the end of the 1950s, the Eisenhower administration produced a document, NSC 6010, that said, we are going to begin to treat Iran as our proxy in different language, but essentially said we're going to treat them as our proxy. The reason that the U.S. government needed Iran as a proxy at that point was because in 1956, the British had been embarrassed over the Suez crisis and had committed to withdrawing all of British forces over the next decade and a half from the east of Suez. So there was going to be a vacuum left from the east of the Suez Canal. The U.S. did not want to fill that vacuum with its own people, but it was willing to fill the vacuum with an Iran that it trained and equipped. So the Eisenhower administration begins to plan it out. The Kennedy administration doesn't really do a whole lot with it, but the administrations of Johnson and of Nixon specifically grow it tremendously. One historian, Roham Alvandi, actually argues that by the Nixon administration, uh, the U.S. had was no longer the senior partner in the relationship, but they were equitable partners because Pahlavi had gained so much power. Because anytime the United States would not sell Pahlavi a weapon that he wanted, he would say, well, I can go buy it from the Soviets. And this kept presidents, specifically LBJ and Nixon, scared to death. LBJ had been a domestic policy president. He didn't give a damn about foreign policy. He was forced into Vietnam because of domestic politics. So when Pahlavi begins to threaten to go to the Soviet Union when LBJ tries to hold out on him, that was enough to get LBJ to pay attention to Pahlavi and foreign policy. So he began the process of basically giving uh, Iran access to any possible weapon it could want outside of nuclear. And then Nixon greatly exacerbated that with a blank check policy. And then Carter inherited it. Ford, Ford kept it, whatever. Carter, Carter inherited that policy, but more importantly, Carter inherited the relationship at the same time. And that's also important. You need to say something, I can take a breath. No, 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 no. You, okay. you've, you've, I'm a captive audience. Okay. Um, well, yeah, no, and I'm, I've, I'm jotting some things down that I will ask you about later. Um, okay. But I mean, I'm particularly interested too, you know, um, your advisor's son was one of my, I had him for 45 to present in grad school and right. also a class called the es, uh, espionage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really interested in the, the CIA, angle, CIA angle on this and how, um, how that's connected. And then the intelligence agency that springs up uh, that's sort of trained by the CIA in Iran. That uh, I, yes, it was, yeah. Yeah, that's that that was fascinating to me as well. So, but uh, no, keep going, man. <clears throat> yeah, so um, you know, Savak was trained by the CIA and by Mossad, the Israeli intelligence uh-huh. agency, uh, in conjunction. You know, I think that we typically think about the Iranian Israeli relationship as constantly being, um, you know, violent, but it's not. Um, Historically, the, uh, the Israelis and the Iranians got along fairly well because they shared one thing, uh, if nothing else, and that was that neither are Arab. 
So, you know, they had they have at least some common ground to that extent. Right. Wasn't um, it a Persian that uh, freed the 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 Babylonian captivity in the ancient world, I believe? Uh, Cyrus. Cy Cyrus yeah. the Great, yeah. Cyrus there the Great. you go. Um, yeah. So if nothing else, we've got Cyrus. Cyrus the Great. So I, I know there's like there's a lot of train, trains of thought here, and I'm just sort of I'm just sort of uh, barreling into it. But the reason that revisiting 53 to 79 is important is because Eisenhower, Kennedy, LBJ, Nixon, and Ford all either never approached the topic of human rights with Pahlavi, or if they did. They very quickly shut their mouths on it. JFK in particular very quickly shut his mouth on human rights because they had to subordinate human rights to greater Cold War exigencies. The Cold War was everything. Containment was everything. And if Pahlavi under, with Savak, using Savak, was going to be repressive, quite frankly, it didn't matter within the, the, the doctrine of containment. Because containment, the Cold War, the East-West struggle, the battle for the hearts and minds, for the spheres of influence, for global dominance, that was everything, human rights be damned. So Jimmy Carter inherits this. And there's a lot of mythology around Carter, specifically if you talk to people who were alive at the time, right? Carter comes barreling into the, into the presidency. I'm going to privilege human rights. Human rights will be a state of my foreign policy. Historians more recently have thankfully revisited this, and I, I suppose I'm part of these people revisiting this idea. Carter, first off, did not take up the mantle of human rights until well into the election cycle of 1976, about that September, after Henry Jackson, the neoconservative from Washington, dropped out of the, out of the race because he was the, the human rights standard bearer for the Democratic Party this point, and I'll, I'll, there's a caveat to that I'll talk about in a second. Once he dropped out, human rights became available and viable for Carter to talk about, and that's when he started talking about it. Gerald Ford had already been done, had already been doing it. In 1975, Gerald Ford created the first office, uh, what was the position called? The Coordinator for Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs was created by Gerald Ford in 1975. So Gerald Ford is already thinking about human rights, but the caveat here to the human rights of people like Ford and Kissinger and Henry Jackson and Carter to a great extent is that when they talked about human rights, they were specifically talking about the right of Soviet Jews to immigrate to Israel. It was a Cold War weapon. It was convenient because you could turn the human rights argument on its head with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union could point to the U.S. and say, well, look at black-white relations. But the U.S. could point to them and say, well, why can't the Jews immigrate out of the Soviet Union? Human rights. Immigration rights are human rights. So it's a weapon. So when we talk about human rights in the 1970s, they're, they're, they're talking about this weaponized human rights of convenience. Jimmy Carter was supposed to have changed that, and there are authors that still argue that he did. Uh, Sarah Snyder wrote a book in the last seven or eight years. It's on the bookshelf somewhere. I can't see it off the top of my head. Seven or eight years. And she is... It's not a bad book. I'm not, I, I, I don't know if I don't know if well-researched books exist that are also bad, unless you're just you know making things up as you go. But she seems to miss the point of her own book, 
because her one of her fundamental arguments is that Carter created a platform from from which other presidencies could jump that to further integrate human rights into foreign policy. And maybe he did. But if he created that platform, he did not practice what he preached. And you can see that in my own research. But there are other historians who have, who have written. Um, Nancy Mitchell has a great book of Carter in Africa and how he failed to live up to these human rights promises in places like Ethiopia and Somalia and Angola and Nigeria and Rhodesia, current Zimbabwe. Um, Kaufman, Scott Kaufman wrote a biography of, his, of, of Carter's foreign policy. He talks about his failures to live up to it in the Philippines. Carter had a personal commitment to human rights, but he did not have an administrative commitment to human rights. Carter, to kind of try to bring this full circle a little bit, Carter was a cold warrior like Ford and Nixon and Johnson and Kennedy and Eisenhower. He didn't just inherit these things from them. He was continuity of them. The relationship that they built, he did not fundamentally change. Just being allies with Iran and Pahlavi definitely should have called into question human rights. His willingness to maintain a relationship with Iran through the Ayatollah Khomeini after it was already apparent that Khomeini was purging his, his political opposition should have been a red flag that Carter is not administratively dedicated to human rights. But for some reason, early, earlier historians and the press just focus on this Carter mythology, but it's mythology. So Carter's order to INS shows us, it's an example of this mythology. When he gave that order to assess those 56,000 students for deportation, he was, he, he was fundamentally violating their human rights. They were, the vast majority of them anyway, within legal status. They kept their heads down. They were students. There were those that protested in the streets. You know what? A protest and a riot are not the same thing. Protesting in the streets, even if you're even if you're just here as a guest of the nation, is protected by the Constitution. And immigrants are protected by the Constitution of the United States. What Carter ordered, in the words of the, the, the judge that first heard the case as this went to court, was the equivalent of a roundup based on ethnicity, based on point of origin. And we, we can pause there if you, if you have some questions, but we can go further. We can um, go further just, I mean, not that some, some of my audience will, um, will want this context, but it, could you explain quickly just the, the connection to Arkansas with these, with these Arkansans that are held, being held hostage and, and how that's kind of firing things up? And, or, or if you're going to go over that later, just continue down your current path. So, uh, of, of the hostages, there were three Arkansans. And this, of course, I mean, contributes to anger. There, there, there's a nationwide anger. The president was angry. Uh, in a book recently written by his domestic policy advisor, Stuart Eisenstadt, um, he quotes Carter as saying, we have to get those sons of bitches out of here. Um, I, I don't even know, I don't know specifically that those three Arkansans being held hostage made Arkansans any more enraged than they already were in principle. 
over over the right. over the crisis in general, to be honest. Um, but there's an immense amount of anger in the country at this time. And when you look through constituent letters written to Carter and to his administration by, well, and letters written by congressmen, uh, the Oval Office was just flooded with letters saying, deport them. At a minimum, at a minimum, there are people that write him and say, do you remember the treatment that we gave to the Japanese during World War II? Yeah. Maybe we should do that. There were those that said that you should do a hostage trade. There are those that said if they kill any of ours, we should kill one of theirs. I mean, the, the, the anger is all over the scale from reasonable anger to, um, you know, unreasonable, to put it lightly, anger as well. Um, so Carter was under an immense amount of pressure. I don't, I've never seen, let's say I've never seen, uh, going through his documents, I never saw anything that said that Carter um, gave into that pressure, that it wasn't his own choice out of his own mind, out of his own anger. Now, that's not something you would necessarily write down um, and document, so I don't know. I, I, I don't know how much influence that had on Carter. As quickly as the turnaround was in the INS order, I'm going to say that it had um, minimal influence on Carter. It took Carter six days. Uh, he That's not enough time to sit down and really focus on these letters and on these demands if, if that may that's what i would that's what i would argue but i have no proof either way um but the carter's order was in line with national sentiment for the most part mm. yeah um how many total hostages were there so it it it, it scales down you initially have so 76 initially, um, but the, let's say it was 70, 76 initially. And then you had, you had the six that escaped to the Canadian embassy. Um, that's the Argo story. Within the first two weeks, the, uh, the Ayatollah's regime ordered that all female and black hostages be released all but two women were released. Those two women were suspected of being CIA members, so they were kept. The other women were released, and, and this was this was kind of a, a, this was kind of domestic and international propaganda for the for the Ayatollah's regime. Really, when they were released, the Ayatollah said something to the effect of, "In the United States, black people and women already have it hard enough. We don't want to contribute to that." So they sent them home. One of those, one of those uh, black men was um, Colonel Liddell Maples from Earl, Arkansas, and there are some excellent front page photos from the uh, Arkansas Democrat and Arkansas Gazette uh, from the day he was from the day he came back to Arkansas. Um, so that gets us down to fifty three, and then in the summer of eighty, one of those fifty three became extremely ill, and they sent him, they sent him back the. Uh, at that point, it was apparent that they were not going to execute the hostages, and the Ayatollah's regime was really, really worried that he would die on their watch and that there would be retaliation for it. 
So he was sent back. So you end up with 52 total hostages that spent 444 days in, in, in Iran. So um, you, you just in us talking about this uh, back and forth messaging about doing this podcast, you had mentioned that, that this project really scaled on up for you a couple of times uh, from this article, which summer 2018 is when this quarterly article was published. Um, from then to now, uh, how has it grown? And like, what are, what are some angles you're pursuing to move forward with this story for your, like your dissertation? So it's grown um, a lot. So there, there are there, there are a few trends, right? So I mentioned that education is a key component here. That the Iranians started coming to the U.S. in increasingly large numbers because of the Fulbright Exchange Program. The Iranian government funded most of these students. Um, they were thrilled to send them to the United States for education. Right up until the hostage crisis, actually, there was a, a letter sent from a, a medical institution uh, that no longer exists, or excuse me, there was a letter sent from a from an Arkansas congressman to Dell Bumpers. Let me get this right. <laughs> There's like three different recipients here. There, there was a letter sent from a, from a congressman to Dell Bumpers on behalf of Pahlavi that said there's a medical institute in Arkansas that has room for Iranian students. Pahlavi would like to send Iranian students there. Can you help us get them there? This was like a month before the hostage crisis began. Right after the hostage crisis began, a female Italian journalist did an interview with the Ayatollah. In that interview, she was extremely combative. It's a fantastic interview to read. It's very long. The, I actually found it because the Carter administration kept it in a file. In that interview with the Ayatollah, the Ayatollah even says, yeah, we want to continue to have access to American education. We just don't want the Americans to, to, to interfere in our domestic and foreign policy. But education is very much an important component. So I, I'm exploring that further. I'm exploring specifically what those Iranian students that were here as students were saying, because basically they, they fell into three camps as you read through uh, their publications. And I've gone, it's very difficult to find a university newspaper from this period where the Iranians are not talking to the newspaper about what's happening and trying to explain to their American audience what is happening and trying to explain the history, specifically the history of the coup. But you have three camps. You have those that are apolitical and then they're not going to touch it. Those that say, you know, I, I am not pro Pahlavi or pro Khomeini, but, you know, the Americans should stay out of our politics. And then you have those that are pro Khomeini and really rub it in the faces of their American readers. Those are your three broad branches. They have other publications that I have not been able to get my hands on. A lot of those are at the Hoover Institution in uh, Palo Alto in California. I need to read those. But I want to focus on the educational standpoint. In the last couple of years, Matthew Shannon published a book called Losing Hearts and Minds. And it's all about Iranian students in the United States from the 1950s. Basically, his book ends right where my stuff begins. 
by pure coincidence, I sat on a panel with him a couple of years ago. He's been extremely helpful. So I, I want to further explore the educational aspect because overall, this is a diplomatic history, but it's also a, a human story. This isn't diplomatic history from the standpoint of ambassador and ambassador and what they're saying to each other. This is diplomatic history from the angle of how has a diplomatic decision impacted the course of normal human lives? How has something that we have conceptualized as being foreign policy had such a drastic effect domestically? So you got to explore the educational point. Also, as I mentioned, when you're reading through a lot of these letters, occasionally somebody suggests that the Iranians be put into internment camps in the United States. For anybody that doesn't know, during World War II, 120,000 Japanese living on the West Coast, 80,000 were U.S. citizens, American-born U.S. citizens, 40,000 were not U.S. citizens, but that was because they were legally unable to be. Asians could not become citizens of the U.S. through the naturalization process until the early 1950s. 120,000 Japanese living on the West Coast were placed into internment camps after the bombing of Pearl Harbor under the justification of national security. These camps were all over the U.S., starting in California and making, all, making their way all the way to Southeast Arkansas and Roher and Jerome, where there were two. So anyway, they were placed into camps. So there were people suggesting that the Iranians also be placed into camps. So there is this theme to explore then about xenophobia, right? Xenophobia is an American tradition going back to at least the know-nothings of the 1850s. You can probably go back further to colonial America if you want to and look at like German treatment initially in the 1750s. That's been done by a historian named Erica Lee. Uh, she wrote a book called America for Americans that is fantastic. And actually in reading that book, is when it occurred to me that what I am talking about here is also xenophobia and nativism. So I want to place this within the broader context of nativist history. Her book actually is a broad survey of the history of nativism in the US. Something that she doesn't mention whatsoever is this experience. And I don't expect her to. I'm Hell, I'm glad that she didn't. But this book or my work fills a gap that she has and in demonstrating it furthers her point. My, my work shows that her thesis, her argument is applicable beyond just what she has. So I want to place it into the larger nativist tradition, specifically the anti-Asian nativist tradition. We, we forget, I think, that Iran, Iran is in Asia. In the, in, the, in the first part of the 20th century, Starting in the 19-teens, the U.S. Congress created an Asiatic barred zone for immigration purposes. Well, one of those countries in the Asiatic barred zone was Iran. So it, 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 it fits into that, that greater story of anti-Asian racism, nativism, xenophobia within the U.S. historical tradition. So there's education, there's nativism, there's xenophobia, there's just generally soft power. There's also the idea of Orientalism. I don't know, Orientalism is kind of this broad you know, theoretical concept. Um, so Orientalism was not 
invented by a guy named Edward Said, but it was articulated by a guy named Edward Said in 1979 in his book, Orientalism. Broadly speaking, Orientalism is the way that we have historically written about and talked about people from Asia, or better yet, from the Orient, and how they have been uh, pigeonholed into sort of this uh, Aladdin-esque kind of conceptualization of, you know, of, of sinis, you know, sinister despot leaders, you know, like Jafar from the Aladdin cartoon with with the pointy features and the diabolical mustache, uh, the magic carpets, uh, the harems of just you know sexually available women. Um, you know, Orientalism is this, is this notion, this argument, this idea that 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 the Middle East is not what it is; it's what we imagine it to be. That that the Orient doesn't actually exist. It, it's a it's an it's, it's an imagined it's an imagined place, whereas what we're really talking about is Asia, or what we're really talking about is the Middle East, and that instead of conjuring up what these people are, we should just go there and say, hey, you know, tell me about you, uh, you know, give give me the real story about about you and your culture and your her- history and heritage and religion and all of these things. So. Edward Said also wrote another book in the 1980s called Covering Islam, and it's just a basically a, a documentary work about how journalists oh, in the West. I have an Edward Said book that I cited in my thesis. I don't know. Oh, um, um, uh, okay. Culture and imperialism. Does that sound familiar? Uh, I don't know if I've read that one. Oh, I, you're sitting there saying Said, and I was like sitting there racking my brain, and I just brought it into my studio too. Keep talking. Hold on just a second. I'm going to see if I can spot it. So anyway, Saeed also wrote another book in the 1980s called Covering Islam. And in it, he's just talking about how Western journalists talk about the Middle East and Islam and Muslims and how it's still this very Aladdin-esque kind of thing. And it's despotic and it's um, unruly and there are harems and uh, all of these things. So dissertation also has to grapple with this idea of Orientalism, because when you look at these letters that are sent to the president and the congressmen and the public officials, and you look at what's written in newspapers, Orientalism is just dripping out of them. Um, Just this, the the way that these Iranian students are discussed and depicted and written off as the other is just everywhere everywhere. So the dissertation has to deal with this concept as well. You know, how do we see and how do we see this coming out in what's being written and how do we see the, this belief system coming out in what's being suggested about how to, you know, deal with the crisis? Um, and of course this plays into nativism and xenophobia as well, but from a slightly different angle. Um, did you have something? No, no, uh, dude, I'm almost positive that Edward Said also wrote this book, Culture and Imperialism. I don't see it on my shelf, but I cited, I cited that. And then this one, like just some of the thesis points that they were making were applicable to, but that is, um, that's interesting because he makes some of the same points just broadly based in the introduction of, of the book I'm talking about, so. Well, that, that, that was basically Edward Said's thing. Um, Edward Said spent most of the rest of his life um, 
arguing with historians of the Middle East uh, in basically telling them that what they had been writing was garbage. Uh, in, in the book Orientalism himself, he goes by, he goes after very, very hard by name several historians and just like dresses them down and then again spends most of his life um, uh, arguing with them, arguing with them at conferences, you know. Um, Said was was a was a forceful figure. But what he was trying to get people to do was to gauge and weigh and understand the Middle East on its own terms as it was and not as what we imagined it to be. Mm -hmm. That when you sit down and write a diplomatic history, for example, or a history, if let's, you just sit down, it's 1960, and you're going write to a, write a history about Egypt, what are you going to do? You're going to go to the diplomatic documents, and you're going to see what American diplomats and British diplomats, and maybe French diplomats, were saying about Egypt. And that's it. That, that's, your, that's, that's your entire source material. That doesn't tell you anything about Egypt, because these people are writing from a Western lens, and they're writing about how they interpret their culture and not what the culture actually is or was. Um, so that was his whole point. Just take it you know, on its own terms. And that's another reason why I want to explore uh, the, the, the student publications is because I want to know how they saw it. Because I can tell you how the Carter administration saw it. I wanna know how they saw it. What did they see happening? You know, the hostage crisis was pretty well universally condemned because it broke all diplomatic norms. You know, don't shoot the messenger. Don't, don't, you know, don't, don't kill uh, the diplomat uh, that comes to you. They're, they're they are supposed to be uh, by custom protected from these kind of reprisals. They are just the middleman, right? Um, so, right, you know, rightfully, the Western world, really the whole globe, um, condemned. The hostage crisis, but you know you also have to understand the hostage crisis on its own terms. Again, like you have to know about the 1953 coup, which most Americans didn't know about the 1953 coup. Most Americans still don't know about the 1953 coup, as a matter of fact. You know, so it, you know in in the publications that I have, they take a lot of time and effort to try to explain their case, and I just want to know better what their case was. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you could, and many of them did, as an Iranian student, you could simultaneously condemn the taking of hostages, but still understand it and still explain it. Um, and and that, that's important. Now, overall, again, this is a diplomatic history. And what Carter was doing was diplomatic. It was part of his diplomatic strategy. The administration, National Security Council, early December of 1979, lays out a four-point program of how to address the hostage crisis without using military means. And this is sanctions, embargoes, the holding of aid, the refusal of military equipment, these, these types of normal things that we're accustomed to. But one of the points that it makes is the deportation of Iranian students as leverage. It was part of their diplomatic strategy. And when people have written about this 
about this incident, about the hostage crisis, a lot of historians, presumably reading the same document I have read, they always leave the Iranian student part out as if it wasn't a viable part of the diplomatic strategy. But it was a cornerstone of the diplomatic strategy. They were trying, in their own words, in the Carter administration's own words, they were trying to engage in diplomatic strategies that allowed the Iranians to save face so that the relationship could continue because Iran was a staple of containment. It had been equipped and trained and conditioned for two and a half decades to hold off Soviet expansion in the Middle East. And the Carter administration needed that. And in December of 79, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan to prop up a failing communist government there, Iran became that much more important because Afghanistan and Iran are neighbors. They share a border. So if, Afghan, if Afghanistan turns into a communist nation, then where does that leave Iran? Does, he, does Iran also fall to communism? Mm. It's 1979, 1980. It's a huge concern. It's a huge fear. So you had to have Iran. So in an attempt to keep Iran within the Western, specifically the U.S. orbit, you leverage the Iranian students. Let, let me ask you this. Um, just one thing. Uh... And more more early on, but but particularly through like the first five or six pages of your article, reading about uh, some of the the students being interviewed at the papers, um, and maybe you could speak to this: is do you, do you think that there's some parallels with this story to things that we have seen today? Yes. Um, so under the current administration, Iranian students have been targeted at least twice. Uh, last, early last spring, or maybe late last fall, uh, the campus newspaper up here actually ran an article on the anxiety Iranian students were, were, were feeling over a Trump order. Um, and, you know, I, I actually sent, as a student journalist, I actually sent them an email and said, you may or may not realize it, but you were making a very significant contribution to the historical record by documenting this. Uh, over the summer, uh, for about two weeks there, all foreign students who were not going to be able to have in-person classes uh, were ordered to leave. Now, that was walked back. Um, I don't know why that was walked back specifically. You know, MIT and uh, Harvard, I believe it was, very quickly put together a joint court case, and the court case was settled within like five minutes, and the administration uh, walked that back. I would suggest that part of the reason that got walked back was that my camera's losing focus. Uh, yeah. Got walked back is because universities nationwide had basically solved the problem on their own. Uh, I know at U of A, for example, not to and I don't I don't say this for any reason other than just just to say it. I mean I, I don't need any whatever. I was one of them as a reason I know. There were several instructors all across UA's campus that sent emails to administration and department heads that said, if these students are going to be deported without in-person classes, then sign me up and give me a class full of them, and I will teach come hell or high water. A lot of people at UA did that, and I would imagine the story is very similar across the nation. 
So I personally, I think that university has found a way around it. You know, quite frankly, um, the current administration is far more knee jerk than it is um, than it is anything else. Let's just put it that way. And some of these half brained schemes uh, aren't that difficult to get around. You know, right now there is an order uh, that you cannot teach uh, mandatory diversity and inclusion training, and you cannot talk about all of the components of those trainings. And universities are already finding a way around that. And of course, it'll ultimately end up in court and it'll be deemed unconstitutional because it is. But these are knee-jerk reactions, right? Um, so I, anyway, I, I think that there, that, there, that there is a parallel in between it. Because when you, when you read interviews with these people, they are expressing the exact same anxieties that mm-hmm. the students in 1979 expressed. They are encountering the same nativist rhetoric, those old xenophobic impulses where they become the other. Right now, there's, you know, of course, there's lots of talk around Chinese students. Are there some Chinese students that come to the U.S. and steal intellectual property? I mean, probably. Roll of the dice, sure. Are they all doing that? No. Are the majority? No. Do I have any proof? No, but I'm going to say common sense says. But you know, Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, um, one of the least impressive people to ever be elected to office. You know, he has been trying to target Chinese students. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a student from U of A, one from UCA, and one from, uh, I don't remember, some other institution uh, out of state with um, Arkansas Senator up here. Uh, what is the other senator's name? It's not, uh, French Hill. Uh, they had a Facebook uh, roundtable session about the threats of communist Chinese infiltrating campuses, which I didn't watch because I have better things to do than, than, than watch propaganda on Facebook at 9 a.m. in the morning. But they rightly, correctly got crucified on social media for doing that. You had, uh, you know, I'm glad that this isn't like meant specifically for like an academic professional audience because this is this isn't going to sound nice but you know not not to not to focus on somebody's physical appearance as opposed to their ideas but the banner for that anti-chinese propaganda fest was the faces of three dudes that look like they belong to the most douchebag frat you can possibly find none of them uh, you know, none of them have anything, you know, they're, they're, they're just, they're an inch, an, an inch of hair away from having a skinhead. Uh, and, and then there's French Hill, the Arkansas senator, who's currently losing to Joyce Elliott in the polls. To, to tell us all that we should be aware that the communist Chinese party through students is infiltrating college campuses. Now that's, the, I, I mean, the only person, the only person giving that a thumbs up is the corpse of Joseph McCarthy. Like you should, you should be terrified by that rhetoric, not because, not 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 because you shouldn't be concerned for national security. I, I believe in national. Hell, I study national security. But you know, a, a big problem, historical context, a big problem in, with with the Cold War when we look back that the United States, every administration, Democrat or Republican, always struggled 
to differentiate between real threats and imagined threats. Mm -hmm. And we have to be extra vigilant when it comes to imagined threats. And that thing with French Hill and those three frat boys was absurd. And quite frankly, to see that a U of A student was associated with that was embarrassing at best. Uh, So yeah, yeah, we see these things today. You know, a point that Erica Lee makes in her book, and I would encourage you to read that if you haven't, America for Americans, which is, uh, you know, I I, I believe, I I assume that she took that title uh, from the second KKK. Uh, That was their, that was their slogan. Um, You know, she makes the point that what we are seeing today is not an aberration. American tradition has is full of xenophobia, nativism, and racism, and we might we might be seeing it today, uh, hopefully briefly gaining a bit more of a public platform for a little while, where these people uh, feel more empowered and emboldened to say these things. Specifically, like when you have U.S. congressmen getting on TV and intentionally botching a name as easily as Kamala, or you see the president doing the same thing at his at his, you know, rallies, emphasizing Kamala, like like, like you can't say Kamala Harris. I mean, come on. We see these same things today. This is not an aberration. Uh, today, it wasn't an aberration in 1979. It, it is a it is a point of of, of continuity throughout most of our history. Mm-hmm. But there are times when it's worse than others. In 1979, it was worse than other times. Today, it's worse than other times. In the 1920s, it was worse than perhaps some other times. Um, that's a really kind of all over the place answer for your question. But yeah, sure, in, in brief, yes. Yeah, we still see it. Yeah. Well, man, that was just something that just in reading pausing to to think between pages and paragraphs that I was like, man, this is, I started highlighting words that I, I would apply to today, actually, you know, and uh, I did, I got that very much. So a sense of xenophobia reading um, one, one person that I think an air force veteran had written to bumpers um, uh, calling somebody a raghead. Yeah. Yeah. And what's, what's particularly interesting about that letter is that not only does he call them a raghead, but he fails to understand that by ethnic definition, these Iranian students could not be that. Uh, that that was not that was not a, a racial term reserved for them. He, he's 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 he is so out of his element that he is conflating them with Arabs, so that he is using an anti-Arab term. Um, but, but that's how out of out of out of his element that he was when writing that letter. But yeah, I know that, that that letter stands out for a couple of reasons. Um, it's not in that article. Uh, it's in the article I have under review, the one that's national uh, in scope. Uh, university uh, in Beaumont, Texas, had quite a bit of activity on on their campus in, in November and December of '79, partly because in Texas there was a lot of Iranian students. And that university was very close to where Iranian uh, fighter pilots were being trained by the by the U.S. Air Force. So there there were some rallies and protests and counter protests and that kind of thing. And this this uh, white female student writes in to the student paper, and she is just 
she, she's extremely angry over the treatment of the Iranian students. And she writes, you know, how good it must have felt for you all to, to yell racial slurs, use your imagination, racial slurs at these Iranian students because for the last decade or so, you have not been able to use the N-word. And now you are fulfilling that racist impulse in a socially acceptable way. It's a very powerful letter from, from, a, from a young woman at the, on that campus um, that really encapsulates, I think, that, 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 that um, racial tradition and new ways to express it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, well, tell me this, Eric. Like, what um, what's left for you? Like, uh, you're you're crafting your dissertation. What's the future look like? Do you have an estimate of how much more time you have left to go on this, and and also to complete your PhD? Um, that is a really good question because all of the archives are still closed. Oh, bummer. so um, I was supposed to have been gone all summer. Uh, my my estimation is that once everything reopens, it'll take eighteen months. Okay. I need to, at the most, um, I need to go to four places. I need to go back to the Carter Library for another week at least. I need to go to the National Archives in D.C. That's where they have all of the INS documents. Uh, deportation orders with presumably with expectation or not expectations uh, explanations uh, as to why they are being deported. Uh, I need to go to the Ford Library. I'm looking for for you know greater context because you know again uh, there's this mythology around Carver that he was the human rights president. I argue that that was that that's wrong. It's a total myth. Carter was a cold warrior, um, and the 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 human rights impulses that he does express started with Ford, both in his administration and in his campaign in 1976. So I need, I need, to, go, I need to go to Ford's archive and then I need to go to Palo Alto. So um, DC, Atlanta, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and in Palo Alto, uh, California. Um, and once they reopen, I'll just kind of go very quickly. After this next semester, I'm not teaching anymore. Um, I, uh, I need to finish. I want to finish. And uh, the teaching part, I like the teaching part. I don't like the virtual teaching. Um, I like the teaching part, but uh, it takes too much time. And I can't do this forever. Uh, I need to, to do something else. So, yeah. Um, man, like long term, uh, are you looking to move your dissertation to, to publication? Are you trying to... Um, get a tenure track position? Like, what do you think your, your career goals are? I mean, all of the above, I, I would like. Um, you know, I, I think that's the plan. You know, I, I've just even just today talking, you know, I, I've kind of talked about a couple of times when plans change. Um, I did not plan to do a history degree to begin with, and something happens, and I went down a different path. Did not plan to go to Ireland for a master's, and something, you know, happens, and I go down a different path. So I don't know. Um, something could happen, go down a different path. But right now, that's the general goal, yeah. I, I empathize. I never, I think often, because like my wife and I own one of the larger gyms in the state uh, for mixed martial arts, jiu-jitsu. 
And if you would have told me that even 10 years ago, I would not have got it. You know, like what? Yeah, I mean, even eight years ago, I would have been like, yeah, martial arts is cool. I love it. And it is, you know, plans changed. And I still get to do history too. So it's a win-win. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. I think sometimes you, you kind of find your, your passion when you don't mean to. And yeah. you just kind of have to be receptive to what's going on uh, around you, you know, and in your life and not get too stuck on one thing. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'm a planner, you know, have a plan, but um, don't be impenetrable to, to other, other things. Yeah. I mean, you know, hell, uh, <laughs> this whole topic was an accident. Um, I had fully intended to do something with Vietnam, actually. Um, I, I, I like, uh, you know, the Vietnam, I mean, the Vietnam War has been written about extensively and trying to find something untouched, I'm sure would have been difficult. But I was looking, you know, at something like Vietnam. Um, by pure coincidence, actually, my wife is Vietnamese. I liked the Vietnam War before then, but uh, apparently instead of studying Vietnam, I just married into it. Uh, you know, who, how, you know, how does that happen? Um, you know, but I thought about that. My, my um, father-in-law uh, fought in the Vietnam War. Uh, he's currently in Vietnam. He lives there six months on and then six months uh, back here because of COVID. He's been there for, I think, for uh, longer than he intended to be. I think he's been there for almost a year now. Wow. Uh, we were supposed to come back. Um, and I, you know, I, I thought he would have been a, you know, a great resource to talk about, and he may still be a great resource to talk to about, you know, some sort of firsthand account. Um, he won't, I, I, he's never talked to her much about it. Like, you know, a lot of those, you know, a lot of veterans of war don't talk about these things. I thought that he might talk to me about it because it's an academic educational kind of thing. Um, I think what's interesting about him is that he is from the North. He's from uh, Haiphong, but he a Buddhist by birth, but he converted to Catholicism to marry my wife's mother, who was in the South, um, it, it from um, Saigon, and from a heavily, uh, you know, French-influenced family and area. Yeah. Um, so he found himself, by birth, a Buddhist from the North, married to a Catholic from the South, fighting for the South in the Vietnam War. Um, I thought that was, you know, I think that's an interesting wow. story. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. They, they they came over in they came over as refugees uh, when she was uh, they they left Vietnam when she was two spent two years in the Philippines got a refugee sponsor ended up in Springfield Missouri when she was four so she grew up in Springfield Missouri okay wow but, uh, and uh, anyway, you know yeah. uh, Doctor Woods has been working on a book. Uh, over Vietnam pacification nation building, like the whole time I've known him, Which uh, Woods? Je Jeff Woods, yeah. Jeff Woods. Yeah. Uh, but I know that I, I, at least I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Randall Woods has been heavily involved and they've worked extensively together on it. If, if as I understand it, but um, I would, I would imagine Vietnam is of course um, his thing. I believe believe woods reads vietnamese I don't, I don't know if he speaks any of it it's you know very difficult um language to speak because it's so tonal you kind of have to be born into it from what i'm told but um, whenever my wife and 
uh, her mother on the phone talking like it just blows my mind because it sounds like the same four words to me over and over but they're having a full you know I have no idea what's happening um, but yeah so Randall Woods I think at least reads Vietnamese um, in the last couple of years Vietnam established the Fulbright University if you're not aware of that it's a oh, mostly American funded university uh, Woods was actually um, brought to Saigon for a full semester to help them put together their humanities faculty. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Amazing. Um, when I first met Jeff Woods, um, I'd gone by uh, the history department. I did. I was going to take, I was going to do an independent study with him as an undergraduate and do a documentary film over, uh, I had a relative that had fought in the Vietnam War. And they're like, yeah, Dr. Woods, he's out. He's in Vietnam right now. He'll be back later. I was just like, like a college freshman, like, what? We can be yeah, like, who am I dealing with here? It, it's, um, were you a first generation college student or? I was, yes, I was. Yeah, I, I was too. I think it's, it's such a different experience, I think, to, to go in and it's like, I, I need to meet with my professor, but I can't because they're on the other side of the world. And it's like, it's like, what the hell is your job? Like, what are you doing? It's so, because you just don't have, you know, if you're first gen and your parents can't give you any information, you don't have any siblings, um, entering college, man. And, and, you know, and sometimes when I get frustrated with my students, I try to keep that in mind. Like, you know, they, they just have no idea what all goes into this, um, and, you know, kind of, you know, just the whole, the whole process. And it, it can be kind of frustrating, but then you have to remember, like, I was an idiot once upon a time when it came to these sorts of things too. And, you know, uh, at the same time, I think it's, I think it makes it such a cool job though, right? It's like, you know, I've got to go to this dusty archive on the other side of the world. I'll be gone for two weeks. <clears throat> Don't email me, you know? Yeah. Um, that's cool. It, it's, it's kind of, it's part of the appeal, you know? Um, it, it is, man. And I think like when I do advising with my students, this is the sort of stuff I talk to them about. I'm like, uh, about, you know, your job, your career, your pathway, mm -hmm. it can be like that. It doesn't have to look like what you've always been told or what you were thinking because i was like as i was mentioning with some of the other stuff i didn't think that life would turn out this way even 10 years ago um but it's it's definitely i just tell people i'm like look you could you could turn anything into a career everybody asked me what i was going to do with history everybody asked me what i was going to do with martial arts they both panned out extremely well for me um but you know i think anything can if you if you pursue it, if you're passionate about it, I think that's right. a, a big stipulation. Yeah, right. Passion. Passion is passion is the key word. You know, I think, I, th I think one of the worst lies that we have told people for the past several decades, honestly, is that you have to go to college to be successful. Obviously, yeah. you can go to college and be successful, but if you're passionate about something, if you're good at something, you know, I'm not saying don't go get some sort of training in it. You know, you, you should always be trying to expand and learn, but you don't have to take out $50,000 in student loans either. Um, you know, it, it, passionate passion is the key. And if, 
hell, you know, if, if being miserable in the cubicle, but taking home a fat paycheck is your kind of thing, go get a business degree. You know, I mean, that's hell. That's, that's what my wife has. My wife does. Um, I think it's the most boring thing I could possibly see, but she also probably makes more money than I'll ever make. So, you know, um, you know, pursue your passion and, and marry somebody with a much more financially stable passion is, is probably my, my best advice. And a diverse background. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. We can tack that on, but focus on the financials. <laughs> I feel you, man. Uh, that's, yeah. you know, I lucked out with getting, um, that was one thing like last time when I talked with you on the podcast, I was like, man, all these people are smarter than me. They can teach upper level classes and I have to just teach intro classes. <laughs> like it was this, you know, but at the same time, like I get like some nice benefits with my job and like the full-time schedule and the salary and all that. But yet you guys are doing all the hard, hard work or more enjoy, more enjoyable work, but what, what would be deemed harder work for me, you know, and I, I, if that makes any sense, but just like I've been kind of charting like the plight of adjuncts and of PhD candidate students and how much you guys are doing more than what I'm doing is a full-time, well, you said you taught at community college, so you kind of mm-hmm. probably yeah. get it. But me working as a full-time historian, it's just like uh, it, it, the community college, it's, it, I don't, that contrast, it blows my mind because like when I do talk with you or, or with Marie or somebody like that, just the knowledge level is, it's astounding to be around, you know, and to know that I'm, I'm, I'm a lower rung on the ladder. It's just, a, it's a weird, the whole academic institution setup is, is very strange. It's like you guys are pulling all the, all the, all the hard labor in a way for what I, I surmise. You know, I don't know. I, I don't know if, if, if reading all the time is labor, to be honest, but um, yeah. Yeah. You are well read, man. I appreciate all the um, book suggestions. I, I nabbed three or four uh, just in our conversation today, so we can um, yeah. we can go ahead and wrap it up, man. I appreciate you coming back on, Eric. And if you if you ever have another talk, or uh, Will, I called you Eric like three times, dude. I haven't noticed, honestly. Yeah. Damn, I'm sorry, dude. You're good. <laughs> I did. I I know I know your name's Will. I was thinking like I just associate you with our first podcast with Eric. And I've sat here thought three or four times that I would like to podcast with Eric soon as well, because that way I can uh, have done individual episodes. But um, if you ever have any further research you want to talk about, you go do research to archives, you want to come back on, uh, I would love to have you anytime, man. Well, hopefully, hopefully that made sense because I, I, you know, there's, there are a lot of, there are a lot of strings to that. Today, no, so. well, it does, man. And like I said, just this article that you sent me, that allows me is someone who teaches Arkansas history to to take it, that article and go pursue it. And my audience, if they want, can can do likewise nationally or in relation to Arkansas history. Um, and man, I'm I'm always interested to learn more about the Cold War. It, it was it was a great talk for me, and uh, and I appreciate you just taking the time to lay it all out. I think it's kind of like, um, it's good for me too to give, like when I give, if I do a podcast on something I lecture on too, it's like I, I, I'm lecturing on it and then I'm able to podcast about it more effectively. It's kind of like what you're saying at the beginning with the flag uh, narrative before we started recording. It's like, 
you give the talk a few times, it gets better every time. So maybe, maybe this will be the first of many great talks about your research. Maybe, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I, I just need places to reopen. So yeah, you know, hey, fingers crossed there. I feel you. We just had to close down, um, not last week, but the week before, cause my wife, uh, had COVID. So I saw that. Yeah. yeah. It's it a pretty rough time. Um, How's that going? Uh, she's recovered. She still doesn't have her taste or smell back, but we had, uh, we did have a minor outbreak. Um, like four of our instructors got it across a, a couple of weeks span. Um, and a couple of students, but for, we have over 300 people in and out of here every week. So, um, I feel like that wasn't, wasn't bad. I mean, we take all the precautions we can, but like, like what you just said, it's like, I have to stay open because that one singular income from the community college is not going to pay all of the bills, you know? Right. No. And that's, man, it's a, uh, it's still a mess and hopefully, hopefully it ends at some point. Maybe. Yeah. This, uh, yeah, we'll get through it, man. Yeah. You know, just, uh, togetherness, same positive oh, yeah. through it. God, I'm so tired of the word together this year. <laughs> All in this together. Oh. oh man. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is like, I was like, uh, people are talking about, I've been down a civil war rabbit hole and that's just been like a common thread. It's like, uh, about and this is, I was watching something for 2015, but just talking about political arguing and, and discourse then and um divisiveness and i was just like and they were saying that thing they were saying that yeah you know we need together since 2015 and i was just like yeah uh still hasn't happened <laughs> no no and you know and it's only going to get worse over the next few weeks so oh, man you're not kidding and two uh well, sidebar on this in closing um have you been charting about voter intimidation or well i guess what you could construe as voter intimidation at the polls um People showing up in mass, uh, unchecked, wearing uh, candidate promoting gear, pins, masks, t-shirts, et cetera, flying flags in the in the parking lots of the polls, wearing that stuff into the polls all across the state and nobody say anything to them. Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know if maybe it's it's at this point just too much of a physical risk to say something to somebody, to be honest um that that's sort of the the atmosphere that we're in um you know when people that are not trained are encouraged to go you know protect the polls uh that that's a problem um i know yesterday i saw the news last night well cnn if we can call cnn the news i saw it there last night that um i guess it was in miami a a cop in full gear which they can legally do went to vote but he went to vote with a with a MAGA mask on, and you know there were some you know th there were some some ethical issues there, and you know this is an internal investigation, yada yada, and whatever. But um, you know we we have we have nationwide you know rules for no no you know no no campaign uh, attire for voting for a reason. Um, you know, historical voter intimidation in this country is, uh, you know, alive and well. And th there's, you know, there's a reason that we have those rules. But I, I think this time of year that, 
I think it may, maybe it's a, it's a really sad sort of statement as to where we are politically as a nation in that people are apprehensive to go vote or they're apprehensive to say anything to people who are not by, abiding by the rules because it's such a um, volatile atmosphere. And, and you know, and I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not real into, you know, exaggerating. Um, but this is the first time in my life I've ever, I've ever actually kind of felt uh, a little bit apprehensive about walking into a poll. We're going to go Friday um, whenever we can both go at the same time. And, you know, it is, it is a little unnerving to be honest. It is. Um, it is. And I, I've been seeing people post about it uh, was another remark. And then if not, if not the memorabilia, it's the sort of swirling of the conspiracy theories at the polls on sort of both sides of the aisle. Uh, that's yeah. something that I've seen. Uh, it was a historian comment on, uh, made a post on social media, and 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 they stood and said they stood in there for an hour waiting, and it would just literally blew their mind about some people's reality, you know. So. Well, yeah, I, I, there are there are, are multiple um, realities I think at the moment going on. Um, hmm. Well. Uh, that's a whole that's a whole nother podcast that's yeah it really is it really um, is well man we'll uh we'll cut it man we'll wrap it right here and uh like i said man hopefully this isn't the last conversation we have appreciate you taking the time and um be looking uh I, you know i'm gonna have marie back on pretty soon and i am planning on reaching out to eric after uh after we podcast uh just so i can continue to collaborate with you guys it's awesome talking to y'all cool well thanks have a good one, man. Appreciate yeah. you, Will. You too. See you.